All right, if you want to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Psalms, Psalm 11 is where we pick up in our journey through the Psalms together. A few short Psalms in front of us, more Psalms of David we have here. We'll see if we can look at a few more of them this evening. Psalm 11, if you read ahead, you may notice is sort of a Psalm of crisis, uh, whether it was a personal crisis that David himself was going through. And from time to time, we do find ourselves encountering a crisis in our lives. Different events can happen. Different situations can kind of confront us that put us into that crisis mode. But of course, there are times as well of national crisis or a family crisis or maybe on a more collective manner in a greater capacity we find ourselves not only personally but kind of corporately together going through a season where we're dealing with a crisis type situation maybe on a societal level or a national level as well and David seems to be addressing those things here in Psalm 11 so it's sort of a psalm of dealing with crisis if you would if you would want to in some way maybe entitle what this psalm predominantly deals with and in the midst of those things notice how David says here in those first few verses Psalm 11 verse 1 he says in the Lord I put my trust how can you say to my soul the idea is that it seems David was getting advice or people who were trying to say things to him to guide him to give him their counsel how can you say to my soul david says flee as a bird to your mountain the idea is escape just run away if you just run away and escape david that would be the best thing to do for look they say the wicked bend their bow they make their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart, David says, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So David begins right out of the gate here by giving to us probably perhaps the best advice in light of this psalm dealing with crisis that any of us could take to heart, and not just take to heart, but actually put into practice. And David, again here, as we've seen before, makes this statement, in the Lord I put my trust. Again, he didn't put his trust in himself. That's never a very reliable place to put our trust long-term because we are all faulty people. And even on our best day and with our best efforts, we let ourselves down. We make poor decisions from time to time. Sometimes, as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so it's never good to put our trust in ourselves, to navigate through a difficult time or to deal with a crisis because our emotions and our thoughts can get off track. We can find ourselves just making matters worse from time to time. It's also important that we don't put our trust in lots of other things that we could put our trust in. Uh, David doesn't say, in my finances, I put my trust. You know, in my 401k or in the stock market or, you know, in my retirement funds or in my bank account, I put my trust because... Again, interestingly enough, he talks about here in verse 1 that they were saying to him, flee as a bird to your mountain. Well, the Bible says that money can actually have sometimes wings and just kind of fly away. It can go as quickly as it comes. And uh, so it's a vain thing to put our trust in just our finances or our resources. God's our ultimate provider. 
we should never put our trust necessarily in other people. And not to say that we shouldn't to a degree rely upon others in a healthier, balanced way, but we can't ultimately put our trust in other people to always come through or to resolve problems, nor can we, nor should we put our trust for that matter, uh, even in good men, or let me even go so far as to say in godly men. Uh, we shouldn't put our trust as well in government. And a lot of times when we get so frustrated, I feel like, and so agitated as people, it seems, in late, especially in our American culture, I almost wonder if some of that is just an indication that our struggle is, is that we're putting too much trust in our government. We're not supposed to ultimately put our complete trust and confidence in the government where our complete trust and confidence should be and where it needs to be is in God. In God alone. And David here says, look, yes, I'm facing a crisis. Yes, things are not good right now. And he says, in light of that, in the Lord is where I put my trust. That's where my ultimate trust is, where my reliance and dependence is settled upon. And it seems, again, that David was facing, as I said, this struggle where people were trying to give him advice. But yet that advice was really kind of coming from a perspective almost kind of trying to inspire fear in David, whether in a purposeful way or kind of just in an underlying way, that's what the advice was really prompting to happen within David's mind or his emotions, that they were trying to give him statements and feed ideas to him that would cause him to act in fear in the way that he would respond to what was going on in his current situations. And David here in this psalm basically is saying, look, you're giving me advice that wants to promote fear, but I realize that God, as I put my trust in him, wants me to live by faith. And if the Lord's in my trust, and he's going to say, and the Lord's on his throne, then ultimately I can't live by fear. I need to live out my life by faith, irregardless of what is going on in the current situation in my circumstances or what's happening nationally. Again, was David writing these things at a time when he was on the throne as the king? Well, David had times of difficulty when he was serving as the king of Israel. Or is he writing these things just on a completely personal level? David had his own share of difficulties and crisis-type situations he faced even when he wasn't the king of Israel. But the same truths apply. And you could tell that they were trying to prompt him to be concerned about what was going on. Because notice he's saying there in verse one, how can you say these things to my soul? And this is what they were saying to David, the end of verse one and into verse two, saying to him, uh, David, you should flee as a bird to the mountain. The idea there, like flee, indicates flee in the sense of preservation. David, you are in danger. David, there are things that are threatening your personal welfare. So David, what you need to do, protect yourself. Do whatever is necessary to preserve yourself. Do whatever it takes to protect your own interests, to guard your own welfare. David, that's what you need to do. Like a bird fleeing off to the mountains, finding a safe place to go. David, take actions, take steps to protect yourself. There's a threat against you. Things are going to get dangerous. It's going to get hard. It's going to get more difficult. David, flee, run, do what you have to do to escape to protect and to preserve yourself. And a lot of times that is what the voice of fear encourages us to do, is it not? The voice of fear, whether it's in our own thoughts or reasoning from time to time, or whether it's other people, even, listen, even if well-meaning, 
even if well-meaning, trying to give the best advice they can, encourage us that the best thing we should do all the time, and I'm not saying there aren't times when we should use stewardship. I'm not trying to say we should exaggerate this to an unhealthy extent, but sometimes even well-meaning people give to us advice and guidance that almost wants to encourage us that the best thing we could do is to just think about protecting our own self-interest or preserving ourselves. And really, it's, again, almost motivating us to live by fear rather than saying, look, I trust the Lord. I understand the dangers. I realize there could be threats. I realize that there are situations that could unfold, but I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm not going to just react in fear and do everything to have to protect and to preserve myself. And that's really what they were saying, because look at verse 2. David says that they were saying to him, the wicked are bending their bow. In other words, David, the wicked are about to attack. Those who don't know God, who don't serve God, David, they are plotting something to destroy the righteous. The wicked are, are arming themselves and bending their bow. They make ready their arrow for this thing. David, they are getting ready to do things to destroy the kingdom of Israel, to, to wreck your role as the king of Israel or to harm you in some way personally. Again, we don't know for certain if he was the king of Israel at this time yet. Notice verse two, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. In other words, David, what they were saying, you need to be aware, David, there are secret plots that are going on right now. There are secret plots that the wicked are already putting in place to be able to launch an attack against the upright and the righteous and to destroy it all. And so, David, you better protect yourself. You better arm yourself. You better do everything that you know how practically to get yourself ready to make sure that you're not harmed by this attack and this secret plot that the unrighteous are getting ready to launch against you. And again, I think we need to, at time to time, use wisdom. And I'm not saying there aren't legitimate, credible things on occasion that can unfold. But again, we need to realize this is what the voice of fear says to us. The voice of fear wants to put our eyes not on the Lord, but put our eyes instead on all the things that could possibly happen to harm us or to hurt us. And the voice of fear makes us always want to feel suspicious, to always be looking over our shoulder, to always think somebody is plotting something to ruin us, to destroy us. And I tell you, I think a lot of these kind of things at times are, are just an underlying symptom of people living in fear. And in constant concern, rather than what David is going to say, verse 4, recognizing, look, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's still on his throne. Nobody's dethroning God, David says. Look, evil men may do what they wish. Evil men may take over thrones on the earth, right? It's happened throughout human history. Throughout human history, evil people have been world dictators, have ruled over empires. And done, but, but in the midst of all those things, they have come and they have gone. And none of them, even if they've had little earthly thrones, have ever dethroned God. And David understood that. David's eyes were on the ultimate throne. Look what he says, verse 3. He says, look, if the foundations are destroyed... Oh, they're going to destroy the very foundations of everything that's good and right. They're going to destroy the foundations of America. What do the righteous do? What if, David says, if the foundations are destroyed? Interesting, that term foundations in the Hebrew literally refers to the settled order of things. 
Again, think of what a foundation is. We, we know what that is by way of a building. The foundation is the basis to everything else being built upon it in a sound and, and, and strong way. And if the foundations crumble, right, the, the whole thing is going to potentially fall apart. And the term there, the settled order of things. What if the, the wicked, what if they disrupt and destroy the settled order of things? What if that happens? He says, what can the righteous do? What, what do the righteous do in that situation? What should the righteous do? Well, David answers, verse four, the righteous should recognize this, that the Lord is in his holy temple and that the Lord's throne is in heaven and that his eyes behold. The idea is he is fully aware he has not abdicated his responsibility. He's not in heaven fretting and biting his fingers. Oh my goodness, I can't believe that person's in power now. I can't believe that group has got this agenda now, or I can't believe they might do this if they have power in that particular political party now. God's eyes are aware of everything that's going on. And he's still ruling and he's still reigning. That is, he's still ultimately sovereignly in complete authority at the end of the day. And what the righteous need to do is remember that we have a higher throne that we look to and that we can rest in. There is someone in charge over everything that's still happening and we can rest and find a degree of security and personal peace within ourselves to be able to just rely upon that reality. Yes, God, the foundations may be destroyed and things may be falling apart, but God, thank you that you are still on your throne in heaven, that your eyes are beholding, nothing's getting past you. You will deal with things in your way properly and in your time as is necessary. He says, his eyes behold and his eyelids test the sons of men, verse five, and the Lord tests the righteous. Now that's interesting. The Lord, David says, tests the righteous. Verse three, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What, what, what are we supposed to do? Verse five, David says, perhaps what's happening sometimes when the crisis happens, when crooked and wicked people are doing evil things and it appears they're prospering, he says, perhaps sometimes in the midst of those things, what God is allowing to happen as well is he's allowing the righteous to be tested to see how are we gonna respond as the righteous? How are my children going to respond in the midst of this crisis? Those who say that they know me, those who claim that they trust me, those who say that, that they're going to live according to a different ethic and standard in the way that they relate to people. Perhaps the Lord is testing the righteous and allowing the righteous to manifest really where they're going to stand and how they're going to behave. And look, if nothing else in the midst of hard times, one of the things that happens is God is testing us and allowing us to be tested as his people, to see what we may do and how we may respond. And are we going to walk by faith or are we going to react in fear? And are we going to take matters into our own hand and try and fix things in the flesh? Or are we going to say, no, the weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians 10, are not carnal fleshly but they're mighty in god able to pull down strongholds and and how are we going to navigate spiritual battles and things when they come so david says the lord is testing the righteous and by the same token verse five but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates boy that is strong language god takes notice those who love violence 
God says his soul hates that type of behavior and that type of desire in mankind when someone loves violence. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. So again, you almost seem to get the impression in verse six that God is more than able to deal with his enemies, don't you? You get the indication that when the righteous are vexed and bothered by evil and ungodly behavior, that we can trust that ultimately in due time, God who is a good and a righteous judge will judge, will punish, and will ultimately deal with those who are doing evil and wicked and violent and unrighteous things, destroying the very things that matter to God in his righteous heart. So upon the wicked, it says, one day God will rain down his judgment upon them. Verse seven, the reason for the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness and his countenance beholds the upright. So because the Lord is righteous in his nature, as a good and righteous judge being just, he cannot allow evil to ultimately succeed. He can't allow evil and wickedness to ultimately prevail without being judged, without being dealt with. Because he himself is righteous, and because he is righteous, he loves righteousness. So as the righteous, when he's testing us, what does God love? Well, he loves righteousness. In other words, he loves to look upon the earth and see the righteous as he's testing them, doing what is righteous in the sight of God and what is righteous among their fellow men in the midst of even the times when the foundations are being destroyed and everything seems to be falling apart. When we choose to do what's right, that's really what God loves and his countenance beholds when we behave in an upright way. Psalm 12 tells us again to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, another Psalm of David. And here David cries out in prayer, right as he opens up, help. It's a great way to start any prayer. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So David here says, Lord, uh, there is no more, it seems, help from any man. In fact, it says it seems every good man, every godly man, every faithful man seems to be disappearing. So, Lord, only you are going to be able to help. Lord, only you are the one that we can rely upon. So he cries out for the help of the Lord in this situation. Kind of, you know, interesting as he says here, the godly man ceases. Boy, that's a sad testimony. The godly man ceases, that there's seeming to be a lack of those whose desire is to just be a godly man, not a worldly man, but a godly man. And he says, for the faithful are disappearing from among the sons of men. That word faithful there, the Hebrew term is literally those who are loyal, those who are dedicated. And so David says, boy, not only does it seem like there's an absence of godly men, but he says, there's also disappearing from among the sons of men, men who are faithful, people who are loyal, dependable. Boy, what wonderful attributes when someone has that in their character. But David says that seems to be disappearing. Like there's a vacancy of that anymore. Faithful and loyal men are disappearing from among the sons of men. Now, 
in a prophetic sense, in some ways, what David cries out here, help, Lord, the godly man ceases, the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Uh, there's also a part of verse 1-2 that's very picturesque of really what's going to be the characterizing mark when the rapture of the church happens. Because as times wax worse and the days get darker and darker, and as in the last days perilous times come, we know that the word of God indicates that that is just a precursor to what is about to happen, the catching away of the saints, where the Holy Spirit is going to quickly snatch away the church from off this earth. And we think things are bad now. People think things are bad on the earth now. Can you imagine what it's like when every godly man, every godly woman, every faithful man, every faithful woman to the Lord is instantaneously removed from the planet? Can you imagine how bad it's going to be then when there is no more salt on this earth, no more preserving good, righteous influence, when there's no more light on this earth because all of that which is good and holy and righteous is going to be removed from the earth instantaneously when Jesus calls his church home and how much people then are going to sadly be praying this prayer in a whole new way, help Lord because the godly and the faithful have disappeared. They're not around anymore. And wickedness will just fall into place like a flooding current. It will just come rushing in as all the believers are taken off the earth and the tribulation period begins to unfold. David says, verse 2, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips. The idea is lying lips. Again, flattery is just speaking in manipulative ways to try and deceive people, to, to kind of take advantage of them with flattering lips and a double heart. The idea is just, again, being deceptive. They speak. But again, David being hurt and upset by those who are speaking in dishonest ways, in hurtful ways, what does David do, verse 3? He says, look what he does. He brings the matter to the Lord again. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, that is arrogant, rebellious things, who have said, look at this, how picturesque, verse 4, who have said, with our tongue, with the things that we say, the statements we make, the policies we pass, the votes that we, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own, and who is Lord over us? Who's going to tell us that we can't say and we can't enact and do what we want to do through the things that we state are going to come to pass? But again, what's David's problem? People who are lying people who are speaking arrogantly and proud and rebellious against all that is good and right. And what does David do in verse three? David doesn't say, well, you know, I need to fight fire with fire and let me engage and argue and battle. And David just says, may the Lord shut their mouth. Wow. You mean, David, you just pray? Come on. You can't just pray, David. You, you got to do more than pray. David says, May the Lord cut off their lips and shut their mouths. He says, Lord, would you just please, Lord, just shut their mouths. <laughs> Lord, just do whatever you got to do. again. And he just, he doesn't tell God how to do it. He just asks God to do it. He just says, Lord, whatever way you want to choose is fine with me. But I'm just asking, he says, just cut off their lips. 
Don't let their tongues prevail, God. They may say what they say, but don't let them prevail. Don't let them succeed, Lord. Just do what you can to silence them. And, to hint. and again, I, get, I love David's wisdom here. Again, this is tremendous maturity and more. It's not just maturity. This also, to me, is a demonstration of faith. Because David actually believed that he could pray about the matter and ask the king upon his throne to intervene supernaturally with his divine power from heaven to address a situation rather than David having to address or fight the battle in his flesh himself. And I think David shows tremendous confidence in the Lord here. You know, would to God that we would realize more the value of asking for heaven's help rather than always resorting to human tactics to try and solve problems. And, you know, what a wonderful thing, right? When on occasion you don't resort to human tactics and you seek the Lord, you cry out to God, you bring matters to God and you ask for God's intervention and you get to see God do it from time to time. Right? I mean, I think of a situation just recently where about a, a month or so ago, I, I was really feeling a burden about a particular situation with an individual and, and was wondering if I should address them or talk to them about it and was kind of thinking through, okay, you know, should I say something? Shouldn't I say something? And, you know, the longer I've walked with the Lord, I, I find that I'm less prone now to be as quick to challenge somebody or to intervene. And I just started praying and just asking for God to speak to him. And some of that is, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting more, I don't know, less uh, interested in my old age and battling. Lord, I don't really want to have that conversation. Lord, could you please just speak to them? Please, Lord, speak to them. And you know what happened? After about a month of just praying before I said anything, the Lord just spoke to them. <laughs> and I didn't have to speak to them. It was great. It was fantastic, Lord. Thank you so much. And again, just another lesson in that whole reality of I could have spoken to them. And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for us to speak and to address situations. Again, biblically, there's a time where we should speak the truth in love. There are times and occasions when we should speak, when God wants to use us to give a word of correction or maybe to question or challenge somebody to keep them accountable. And if the spirit of God's leading us to do that, then great. But what I think we do is we tend to err on the side of always being more quick to do that than we are to say, may the Lord speak to this person. May the Lord work in this situation and, and asking God to work and sometimes waiting on the Lord, giving God a chance to work. And it's so much more wonderful, not only to get to see God do that, but then the reality becomes, look, then they're not upset with me. They're, they're battles between them and the Lord. And I found that if I can talk somebody into something, somebody else can talk them out of it. But if God tells somebody something, it usually sticks, right? And it usually works long-term. And so again, I love David's mindset here. Yes, he's dealing with issues, but he says, Lord, would you deal with this? Would you just deal with what they're saying and the problems that they're causing? And he just uses prayer as his battle tool and his battle weapon, just so wise in the way that he approaches this. Verse five, he says, for the oppression of the poor, look what he says now, for the oppression of the poor and for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. So notice, God interjects here. David sort of prays, and here's what God's response is. Verse 5, he says, you know what? 
I will arise. And the idea, again, of God arising, the indication is God taking action. That's what the indication is there. When David says, Lord, arise, or when God says, I will arise, God's saying, I will take action in that situation. I will become involved. And when does God take action? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, that is for those who are being taken advantage of, for those who are being mistreated, for those who are unable to address their situation, who are weak or needy or less fortunate. Again, they don't have the power or the resources to help themselves, whether it's in a legitimate financial situation or maybe it has nothing to do with money. Maybe they're just poor in spirit and needy and the idea is weak and vulnerable and they can't resolve the situation because they don't have the capacity or opportunity. And God says, I will arise and I will provide safety for which that person is longing for who cries out to me I'll respond to come to their aid to help. Verse six, he says, the words of the Lord. Now, keep in mind, in contrast to the words of men, right, which are what? Lying, proud, arrogant statements, rebellion. David says the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And you shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever so david here reflects upon something so much more wonderful in contrast to the lying words of men the wicked words of mankind he says the words of the lord now those he says those are pure words the idea there of pure is is uh, not mingled with anything that defiles them again there's no impure motive in any of the words of god There's nothing defiled at all in the word of God. He likens the word of the Lord or the word of God. He says it's like, metaphorically, like silver that's been tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And the idea, again, seven is always a number of completion. That is like silver completely refined. They would heat up the the silver and they would cause, as they would heat it up, all of the impurities and the, the dregs, they would call it, to, would kind of rise to the top, and then they would slag off or take off the impurities. And they would keep doing this process to purify the metal and to get all the impurities out of it until it was completely pure silver, completely pure gold. And that increased the value of it. It increased the strength and reliability of the metal, that it was more pure in its content. And David says, this is what the word of the Lord is like. He's saying God's word. He says, they're pure words. The idea is God's word is valuable, like silver, like gold. Psalm 119 is going to use that description, you know, of how God's word is more precious and valuable than like silver and gold. The word of the Lord has such value to it. You know, I mean, we put so much you know, stock in and interest in hearing the words of people. Oh, what are they saying now? What are they saying on that website? What's this person saying on their Twitter feed? You know, what, who's this person? What are they saying on Facebook now? And, and we're so interested in the words of men. How much value is there really, really, truly <laughs> to the words of men? We have the word of the Lord. How much more valuable is the word of the Lord, the pure word of the Lord? Nothing in here is defiled. Look, there is never going to be a time when you or I are going to read the word of God or study the word of God or hear the word of God. And anything from that will bring any defiling effect upon your life. Isn't that awesome? 
You can never have a conversation with God. You can never hear God's word and in any way be defiled by it. You're only going to be benefited by it. It's only going to add more purity to your life and purify your wrong thoughts and purify my wrong heart and, you know, and, and just purify my perspectives because the word of the Lord is pure. The Bible says the entrance of his word gives light and his word has such value. David says it's like you know, precious, purified silver, purified seven times. The word of the Lord is valuable and it's reliable. It's dependable. It's something that we can trust in and have confidence in and the benefit it brings to our life. Again, David loved the word of the Lord, especially in contrast to the words of men. He says, verse seven, and you shall keep them, O Lord, and preserve them from this generation forever. Now, some believe, and I think it's possible, commentators disagree that uh, verse seven is a direct reference when he says, you shall keep them a reference, not to people, but a reference to the word of God. That the word of the Lord is pure. It's been tested. It's been tried in the furnace. Men, right? Men have for human history been trying to do away with the word of God. God's word has been subjected to the, the fiery tests of atheists and people who have tried to discount the word of God and disprove the word of God. And what has God done? He's preserved it and he's protected it for all of human history. And he's only proven again and again that man is wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. And God's word has been preserved continually. No man has altered it. No man has done away with it. And very likely, verse 7 is a reference. Lord, you shall preserve them. That is the word of the Lord. Preserve the words of the Lord. That God will preserve his word from this generation and forever. You know, the Bible tells us that the word of the Lord is eternal. It's settled in the heavens. Look, you could destroy every literal copy and paper and ink of the word of God on the earth and you'll still never destroy the word of the Lord because it's settled and eternal in the heavens and God is protecting and preserving his word throughout history and it is a reliable thing that we can continue to build our lives upon it is pure and I'll tell you if verse 7 isn't a reference to the preservation of the word of God and it's a reference to people, then to me it works both ways because when he says you shall keep them, you shall preserve them from this generation forever, guess what the word of God does? When the word of God goes into my life and your life, it gives a preserving influence. One of the greatest things that will preserve your life as a person is the word of God because as you take in the word of the Lord, it will have a preservation effect in your life in a very, very powerful way. So David says here, Lord, your words so pure, you preserve them. And then verse eight, he makes this interesting statement. He says, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness, again, so sad, when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Again, nothing new under the sun, even in David's day. He's saying when vileness, again, this filthiness, wickedness, vileness is not just, again, presented, but exalted. Vileness being exalted among mankind. You know, just recently, I don't know if you, you know, perhaps maybe um, on some of the different uh, you know, email chains or whatever. One of the ones I receive information from is Family Policy Alliance of New Jersey. And, you know, just recently, for example, this was uh, just well, January 11th. So that's what, two days ago, if my memory serves me correct. 
January 11th, I got this from the Family uh, Policy Alliance of New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey Assembly passes bill that teaches transgender identity starting now in kindergarten. Kindergarten. So again, the article here basically states the, the email that I received. And again, a lot of times they send this out to encourage you to, to contract, uh, to contract, to contact politicians, to express, you know, your thoughts and just to, to keep informed. It says today, the New Jersey state assembly approved bill a four, four, five, four, which if signed into law by governor Murphy, and we can assume probably what's going to happen. We've seen before if signed into law by governor Murphy, would now mandate sexual and gender identity diversity lessons starting in kindergarten. It says the, this was originally announced by the assembly back in October of 2020, which mandated sexual orientation and gender identity and diversity lessons starting in ninth through 12th grade, as if that was better. But the lessons on being transgender and gender identity and all those kind of things that was originally you know, going to be taught in our public schools, but not until grades 9th through 12th. However, the Senate approved and amended this version on December 17th. Their amendment required these human sexuality lessons to begin now in kindergarten. Today, January 11th, 2021, the Assembly voted in favor of this amendment to now lower the age of students learning about human sexuality from 14 years old to 5 years old. So, again... What is that a picture of? Verse 8, when vileness, vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Again, just maybe a week or so ago, you may have seen the abortion bill, the Reproductive Freedom Act, uh, again, which is basically something that's trying to be pushed forward, which enables girls to be able to get abortions as minors without consent. So again, you can be a minor, a teenage girl in the midst of a crisis, pregnancy, an unplanned pregnancy, and now you don't need parental consent to have to uh, determine whether or not you're going to go through the very traumatic experience of an abortion. Not to mention, again, our tax dollars paying for this and forcing you know, individuals against their conscience in the medical profession to perform abortions. Again, when vileness is being exalted. Among the sons of men. That, that's the generation that we find ourselves living in. And this is why it's so important that we be people of the word of God. Who uphold and who value and continue to be salt and light to the best of our ability. Speaking the truth and standing for what's righteousness. Whether it's with our votes or with our actions and what things that we can do. Because we are dealing with much the same in our current generation as well. Psalm 13, David says here, another Psalm of David, how long, O Lord, he says, how long, he asks, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? And how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Notice four times there you can tell David is struggling what with God's timetable. He's dealing with difficulty and he's saying, Lord, I don't understand how much longer are you going to let this go on? Lord, how long are you going to let this situation 
that's difficult for me continue to keep happening and you're not intervening. And look, that's, a, that's sometimes from time to time our struggle, right? We don't understand God's timetable. And sometimes we wrestle because we feel like, and I stress the word feel like, that God's not acting. And sometimes when God's making us wait or God's doing things in his way or in his timing, we feel like God's not answering. We feel like God's not aware or God's not interested or God doesn't care or or God's not doing anything when the reality is, look, God is always at work. We know that. That is a biblical reality. We see it all through the scripture. But God's timetables oftentimes are not the same as our timetables. And a lot of times God's doing more than one thing at once. And we're thinking, Lord, I mean, come on. I mean, can't you just boom, bum, bump? There it is, Lord. Just if you this and this and there you go, shamazam and boom, Lord, problem solved. I mean, if you need a vacation, I can take over God. I know exactly how to handle that situation, right? And, And God's saying, look, I know that you're struggling, but my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And sometimes when we're waiting on the Lord, we wrestle like David here. And we find ourselves struggling, saying, Lord, how long? Again, that's, that's a part of our humanity. We wrestle with this. And, and again, just it's normal. We wrestle with the same as David. Perhaps you find yourself struggling in the same way. He says, Lord, I feel like you're forgetting me. How long? He says, you're going to hide your face. Again, Lord, when are you going to show up in this situation? But notice part of where David identifies his struggle is coming from. How long shall I take counsel in my own soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Again, David's sorrowing over this matter in his heart, as you may be as well. But David indicates, how long shall I take counsel in my soul and sorrow in my heart? What's, what was part of David's problem? Struggling with God's timetable. He was, he was talking it through in his own heart. And he says, I'm taking counsel in my heart. Well, look, sometimes our heart can deceive us, right? Sometimes our heart can misguide us. And when our heart is broken or we're struggling with something, David's saying, I'm having counsel in my own soul. David needed counsel from God, not counsel from his own heart. Because my heart can misguide me. My thoughts and my feelings can misdirect me and cause me to question God. And it just, it just makes it harder, right? It just makes us wrestle all the more with our emotions or our confusion. He says, how long, God, will my enemy be exalted over me? Lord, I feel like that the enemy is conquering me instead of me being able to be victorious in this matter. Verse 3, he prays, consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I like David. Lord, please hear. And then I love what he prays, verse 3, Lord, enlighten my eyes. Lord, I need to see what you're seeing. Lord, open my eyes. Give me illumination. Shine light upon the situation, Lord, so I can see it the right way. Enlighten my eyes, he says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Again, God is more than able to do that. And a lot of times I think that's one of the greatest things that helps us is when the Lord enlightens our path. And again, what is one of the best ways for you and I to be able to do that, to receive enlightenment from the Lord? Quite honestly, it's just to draw close to Jesus. Because what did Jesus say of himself in John chapter 8? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And sometimes, Lord, I feel like I'm walking in the dark. I feel like I don't have clarity. I feel like I'm, you know, just, Lord, 
where Jesus says, just follow me, follow me. I'm the light of the world and whatever's going on in the world, I'm not only the light of the world in the sense of spiritual reality, but oftentimes that light of the world is what gives illumination to us to have the light of life, to know how to navigate the things that we're going through. And God is more than able. What a great prayer in the midst of those times when you're struggling and you're confused. Like David, Lord, hear me and please, Lord, enlighten my eyes. I don't want to drift off to sleep into struggling more and more, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So he says, Lord, don't let the enemy accomplish his goal. What was the goal of the enemy? David says, to move him off course. Lest my enemy prevail over me and rejoice when he troubles me and I am moved. Listen, that is what the enemy always wants to do to not only prevail over us, but to to move us, to move us off course, to move us off track, to move us from our stand for what is right, to move us off our stand of trusting the Lord, even when we can't see what's happening or what God's doing or not doing. And that is the goal of the enemy of our soul. As David says here, lest my enemy say and prevail against me well we have an enemy as well david's enemy was not only physical but in some ways his enemy was spiritual as well and we have a spiritual enemy and his agenda is to do that very same thing to trouble us in a way whereby we are moved where you're moved off track spiritually because you're distracted by this or you're upset about that and then all of a sudden your confidence is moved away from the lord or the stand for truth that you have, you begin to move away from that and you start standing for other things. And the enemy would more than gladly get us to do that. But David says, notice, I'm not going to let the enemy prevail, but he says, I have trusted in your mercy and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. David says, Lord, I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna worship you. Because, Lord, here's one thing I do know. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand how long this is all going to go on for. And I don't have the answers. And it hurts. And it's hard. And, Lord, I just don't see what you're doing. But he says, Lord, what I do know is that you have been good to me. You have dealt bountifully with me. And, you know, I think sometimes that's where we got to resort to in faith. It's almost as if we have to take a step back. And when you can't see what God's doing and you don't understand, that's okay from time to time. Lord, enlighten my eyes, help me, and Lord, help me to sing to you, to rejoice in your salvation, to trust you, and to know, Lord, you've dealt bountifully with me. Lord, you have been so good to me. And though I don't see what you're doing right now, you have been so good to me, I trust you. And I trust that you're gonna be good to me again in the midst of these very things. Let's look quickly, Psalm 14. We could take one more in briefly. It's a short Psalm. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works and there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any, he says, who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Notice David here makes a declaration, verse one, by saying the fool. And that word fool there doesn't refer necessarily to being intellectually uh, lacking. It's actually a term in the Hebrew that speaks of being morally perverse 
or being depraved and unsensitive to that which is morally good. So it's not necessarily an issue of one's intellect and mental capacity when he uses the term fool. He's talking about lacking moral intelligence or lacking moral perspective in a proper way. And he says it's the fool who has said, notice, not in his head, because it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Denying the existence of God. Denying the rulership and the authority of God. Now, notice the, the two terms there, verse 1. There is, in your translation, those terms may be in italics. There is, and the reason is because whenever you see something in italics in your translation, it's typically an indication that those terms aren't really there in the original manuscript in the in the the text that was being used but they're inserted by the translators to try and give light or meaning and sometimes it works very well but the true text actually says the fool has said in his heart no god no god that almost to me has stronger meaning the idea is the fool says not only there is no god but the fool says in his heart No to God. The idea is I don't want God's existence because if I acknowledge God's existence, now I'm accountable to someone. So the person who doesn't want to be accountable for their moral behavior or their actions chooses in their heart to suppress the truth and deny the existence of God, not because they don't recognize that God is real, because look, It takes more faith to deny God's existence than it does to acknowledge God's existence. It really, truly does. It takes way more faith to deny the existence of God because the reality is it's a heart issue. And, you know, we live in a culture today where everything's inverted. Today, they would say it's, you know, these people who believe in God, that's foolish to believe in God. God says, no, no, you got it all wrong. The morally depraved, foolish person is the one who says, no to the existence of God and doesn't want God's involvement in their life or in society as a whole. And look, here's God says, this is what happens. The fool says, no God. And God says, let me show you the result of that. Here's why that's such a foolish approach and a foolish heart attitude. Here's the result of saying no to God. Mankind becomes corrupt. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? They become abominable in their works and there's none who does good so that's the result of saying no to god it causes a life to become corrupt it causes people to do abominable that is just filthy animal-like works and they don't do anything good in this life the lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek god notice what's god's interest verse two god is looking among mankind for people who would do what? Who seek God. That is what God's interested in. When God looks upon the earth, he's looking down upon mankind. Notice, he's not necessarily looking for all the things we think God would be interested in. What's God's primary interest? Is there anybody seeking God? Now that tells me something, not just that people don't seek God naturally because we're all depraved and sinful, but it tells me that must be what God's looking for. That the greatest interest of God is our people seeking me. Are we seeking God? That's what he wants to see. Sadly, what God finds, because humanity is fallen and depraved in their condition, they've all turned aside. They've together become corrupt. 
There's none who does good, no, not one. Again, just speaking of the depravity of mankind. That's what the Bible teaches. People want to believe that humanity is basically good. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that humanity is universally corrupt, that we're depraved. We call this the depravity of man, that we are all sinful and inclined to do what's wrong and to deny God's existence and to live in a way that is unhealthy and destructive from the Garden of Eden to the current day in humanity. Again, Paul quotes these very verses here that we have in front of us in Romans chapter 3 as he builds his case for the sinfulness of humanity. You can see Paul takes these very verses to apply them of the universal guilt and sinfulness of all of humanity, that we are universally depraved mankind. We need to be saved. We're corrupt naturally as people. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, he says, who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do they not call on the Lord? Again, that's what Paul says we need to do. We need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. The idea is God wants to bring his presence and his favor upon the generation that seeks to be righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. What's David's longing? Verse 7, the Holy Spirit prompts him to say, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. That word salvation there literally is where we get our term ultimately, Yahweh saves or Jesus, Yeshua. Oh, that Jesus, oh, that salvation, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, interesting. At this time, were they in captivity when David was writing this? They weren't, right? They were in the land. But prophetically, prophetically, the Spirit of God was prompting David to say, oh, that salvation would come for Israel. And when would that salvation come for Israel? After the Lord had brought back the people of Israel from captivity, when he brought them back, that's when the Messiah, when salvation would come for the people of Israel. David, by the Spirit, was almost prophesying in advance when the Messiah would come, when Jesus would come. And look, how interesting, in a double sense, when is the Messiah returning again? What is one of the things that will be a precursor to prepare the way for Jesus to come back the second time? When the people of Israel are more and more returning and back in their land. It's one of the things that will prepare once again for Messiah and salvation to come. So again, first and second coming pictured here very beautifully as David's just crying out for salvation because of the wickedness of mankind. Because the only hope for humanity, folks, is what? Jesus. It's Jesus. It is not all the other things that we tend to think it is. It really isn't. You know, when I was just out in California this past weekend, bringing my daughter back out to Bible college and attended a church out there at Calvary Chapel, and a few people found out I was from the East Coast. And the only thing everybody kept wanting to ask me when they found out I was from the East Coast, hey, was anybody from your church down there at that protest in Washington, D.C., where they stormed the Congress? Do you know anybody who was there? Was anybody from your church down there? And I thought to myself, is that really what we're mainly concerned about? 
And, and the thing the Lord brought to my mind to answer that question was this. I said, in all honesty, I said, I don't know if anyone from our congregation was there or not. But honestly, I don't, I don't want to know. And I said, here's the reason why I don't want to know. Because if somebody from our congregation tells me, yeah, I was there. I was a part of that. Or even, oh, I actually got inside. Or I mean, whatever they tell me. Do you know what would probably happen? Is I would look at that person and more than likely, Considering odds and knowing what I know, I would have to recognize, wow, you'll go do that, but you never attended a prayer meeting. You're willing to go through all that effort because you think, what is the salvation of America? But yet you don't come and plead for the throne of God and heaven's king to rule and reign and for the Lord to rend the heavens and come down. Wow, we're really... We're really off track in what we really need as a people, as a nation, as the church. Man, I don't want the enemy to prevail and to get us off track and move us. We need the Lord's salvation. That's what we need to help us in our current days. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these psalms and for, Lord, the things that they indicate to us. Lord, that they teach us. We thank you for inspiring David by your spirit to, to pen some of these things from his own experiences. Lord, we can, we can truly relate as we read them and recognize how they teach us things that we experience in our lives from time to time. 